Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Uh, I'm okay. I'm, I, I might need your help a little bit, actually. Oh, is that so? <laughs> well, we're recording a day early, so it is Wednesday. We usually record on Thursdays. Or it is uh, Tuesday night, I guess, for you. Wednesday for me. <laughs> yep. Um, and so I, I, this is the day I usually write my, my weekly article. And one thing that's that, I mean, it's been, an, it's been a bubbling topic for for arguably a few years now, but um, I think is is kind of bubbling up again, and that mm-hmm. is the question: Are we in a bubble? Uh, you know, there's lots of in, there's lots of interesting data out there. I mean, the the especially I think um, you know every time there's one of these really big ticket raises, whether it be mm-hmm. Uber or Slack or um, whatever it might be, that are in the you know the unicorns, right? There's seventy some unicorns, I think, worth mm-hmm. have a valuation worth a billion dollars. Um, it, people are immediately like bubble, 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 bubble. Um, I don't know. What do you think? That's a really good question. I think here's what here's what I would say. If someone offered me an opportunity to get in on, <laughs> am I going to do this? I'm going to. Someone's going to hit an early bingo square early. If someone offered me an opportunity to get in on Uber, would I take it? Yes. Um, I think that. Here's what I think. I think that more so than any time in history, uh, technology is reshaping a whole range of industries. I think that as a result of that, you're seeing uh, you're seeing a lot of trends that are different in the financial markets. I also think that there is a whole bunch more. I don't have as good a grasp of all the economics as I possibly should, but you see all these pension funds. You see all this money. Um, chasing investments that will get that that get them decent returns, right? And increasingly, it's going to be the case that there are that these companies are emerging in winner take all type environments. And if you have that money and you're trying to get a return, you don't want to miss out. And the returns are outsized. So, I, I th- there is definitely a supply demand thing happening here. But fundamentally, I, I think. You start talking about companies like Uber and, I mean, Facebook's already gone public, uh, but like companies like this, I, I, I don't think as compared to previous, as compared to say 2000 where um, you had a lot of money and there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a clear revenue, there wasn't a lot of revenue attached with it. And I know over-indexing on revenue also brings its own challenges, but I feel like these companies are poised to dramatically reshape industries and their sound investments. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, you, you, you actually, I think, touched on a lot of the key points there. So I think it'd be interesting to unpack, unpack several of them. I actually think your last one was, was probably the most pertinent. We talked about... Uh, a few podcasts ago, the mistake people often make in talking about Apple and the iPhone today is to compare it to Windows and Mac in in the in the eighties, right? Mm. And the problem is that it's a totally different world here. The the well, there's a few things. One, everything's different. Like mm. app, like the iPhone came before Android for one. Uh, it has a lot more developer support. The, uh, it's selling to consumers. And also, uh, and the, the absolute numbers matter more than relative numbers. Mm-hmm. All the things we've talked about. Uh, at the same time, it also a lot of people I think really don't understand why the why Windows won, why Microsoft won in the '80s. And we talked about this. A lot of it had to do with because they were partnered with IBM, and then they got in, they got the they got the the core base, and then they could build on top of that. And no one got fired for, for buying IBM. DOS mm-hmm. got established. All the software is written for it. Windows was built on top of DOS, and actually, 
if you really understand it, the Mac didn't have a chance. The reason why I bring that up is not to say that that's analogous to VC, but I think there's a tendency to make the same mistake when looking at the the environment today. Mm. And that is to try to compare everything to 1999. Just because 1999 was a bubble and we think today it might be a bubble. So we're, let's assume they're the same. But the problem is the world is this utterly and completely different. Yeah. And it's, it's very, um, you know, it, it's, it's might be valuable. There are lessons absolutely to be drawn from the eighties. For example, I think a key lesson is uh, the importance of it matters who the customer is, right? Mm-hmm. You, once you understand if it's an enterprise buyer versus a consumer, like so much of, I think insight around phones comes from understanding that the people buying phones today are, are consumers. It's the user is the buyer, right? That's a core thing to my thesis about why Apple is so much more successful today, avoiding disruption and all the other sort of stuff. Right. And you can learn that by looking at the eighties. So it's not that there's lessons to be drawn there. It's not that there aren't lessons to be drawn from looking to the past. It's that you have to, you always have to take those lessons in context in order to, to, to get that much. She's going to make, it's going to be a, a garbage in garbage out problem. Totally. Totally. So I think when you, when you, you made this point very well that this isn't, this isn't the year 2000 or 1999 or the late 90s. And now might there be lessons to be drawn? Absolutely. Uh, but does that mean that if there is a bubble or if there isn't, that it will play out like the late 90s? No, it won't. Whatever happens is going to play out in a way that's unique to the world today. And and so I that's kind of my first way to approach this. Is I don't think it's... Yes, all everything always has boom and bust cycles, mm. but that mm. doesn't mean that everything is the same. Yeah, totally. I mean, you think about a company like Google, it's basically sucked so much of the advertising revenue out of and 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 classifieds and all all those those newspapers that were dispersed out all over the US and potentially all over the world. And it's just sucked it all into itself. Like it's it's pulled all the profitability into itself. And to say that, you know, I'm not investing in Google because, you know, like the revenues haven't caught up, you'd have, you'd have, or, or the, like the, there are big, there are huge amounts of money being invested in Google. Like you'd miss out if you did that. Now, again, not to say it's perfectly analogous. I don't know the financing history of Google as well as I possibly should. But to assume that just because there, 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 I, there are symptoms that look similar in the past that there are now, therefore the underlying disease is the same, I think would be a big mistake. No, absolutely. And I think the other really good point that you made right at the beginning is that uh, what's I think this is the fundamental difference between today and then. So if you go back to 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 my previous to the Mac Windows example, the, the fundamental difference was that then enterprises were the primary buyers and today consumers are the primary buyers, right? And mm-hmm. you you have to understand that to have any of your follow-on analysis make sense. Mm-hmm. When it comes to uh technology in the technology industry today versus technology technology industry 15 20 years ago i think the fundamental difference is that then technology like technology was its own sector like it, 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 a lot of it was yeah. competing against itself it was a lot of these companies were eating each other mm-hmm. and a part of that was because they were selling to 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 CTOs, to CIOs. They were selling into enterprise like mm-hmm. tech buyers, basically. Today, 
you nailed it. You said, you know, the, that technology is reshaping all sorts of industries. Like Uber isn't competing against another technology company. I mean, they're competing against Lyft and whatnot, but their real target is narrowly taxi companies and more broadly the transportation industry as a whole, right? And that industry and opportunity is A, huge, and B, doesn't impinge on anyone else's opportunity, right? So many of these of these things before were kind of zero sum because they're all competing for the same thing. So I think a lot of the biggest companies today are about expanding the areas where technology companies play. And that means that valuations ought to be going up. Venture investment ought to be going up. And and to think that we ought to have some the same sort of ratio and rules and all that sort of stuff that came before doesn't make sense in the broader context of of what is happening. I love that. It's like the zero there. I still think to a certain degree, it is a zero sum game. Yes, there is some growth, but the the nature of the zero sum game has been from zero sum um, within tech to zero sum against the broader the broader economy. So your tech is now competing against taxis and automotive, let's say, and it's growing into things that it previously hadn't been exposed to. And yeah, point incredibly well made. Yeah, I so, agree. So it's interesting. You look at the kind of the top ten. So uh, Xiaomi, it, that's more of that. That's narrowly more of a zero sum game. There could be at Samsung stuff like that, but they're also going into uh, areas like, um, as we've talked about, uh, appliances and like all parts of the house. And so, yes, that's still going against like Samsung and LG and higher and these sort of, of companies. But it's an area that tech hasn't played in previously, so mm-hmm. it is expanding the market. Number two, and these are the list of unicorns. We'll put the list on, on, on the notes, the fortune unicorn list. Uh, number two, Uber. We just talked about Uber. Number three, uh, Palantir, doing ba- big data. Uh, yes, that's, that's mo- that is a, uh, that's, that's much more of a tech company in some respects than o- other ones. But again, this is sort of an arena that wasn't even possible to, that oh, didn't even exist previously. They're taking out Booz Allen Hamilton. I mean, like the 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 person who's buying those services is is would previously have thought about going to big government contractors. And and I've read stuff about um, the government practices of Booz. Like, oh wow, Palantir's coming in, and it's really hard to get them out. And I suspect that as um, as data becomes more prevalent and finding insight in data becomes more prevalent, that they might actually start to have an impact on the commercial consulting businesses, the strategy consulting businesses as well. Yeah, that's super interesting, especially kind of like the second tier ones that are more focused on analysis as opposed to, um, you know, straight up strategy. We, right. we, we should talk about this time. I, I got in a Twitter discussion about like the different sorts of like, because everyone kind of lumps consulting into a big bucket. Um, and maybe we we care too much because we're MBAs. But like, there's like there's there's many different. And you're a former consultant, so you, you're you're particularly yeah, yeah. terrible. Don't don't tar me with that brush. <laughs> I'm in Silicon Valley. That's that's all part of the distant history now. <laughs> yeah, it gets buried in like the bottom that's line right. of your resume. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, Ben. <laughs> but yes, there's lots of different types of consultants. Some are like very analysis based, data analysis. Some are like strategic consulting. Uh, some are, which are usually kind of the, the big three. Um, uh, some are implementation, like doing projects mm. and doing. So there's lots of different types. Mm. That's the that's the takeaway. Um, number four, Airbnb, classic example, taking on the hospitality industry and like arguably the real estate industry. I mean, like again, a massive market that is completely 
green space as far as as far as tech is concerned. And they like it blows my mind that company and some time ago now has more room nights available than Hilton does. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. Absolutely. Uh, Flipkart, e-commerce, um, e-commerce in general, and this is in, in India. Uh, e-commerce is competing against all of retail, right? I mean, yes, there are some e-commerce going up against each other, like Jet in the U.S. Is, wants to take on Amazon and so forth. But the entire market is largely non-tech companies. So like, you you don't you shouldn't look at e-commerce as e-commerce. Look at e-commerce as retail, and retail yeah. is, is is a big market. Number six, Dropbox. That's more of a pure sort of tech solution, and mm-hmm. a bit more of a zero-sum game. So that's an exception here. Uh, Snapchat. Uh, I've argued, I mean, some people think that they're competing as like Facebook and stuff. I mean, I, I've, I've written a long time ago and I continue to believe that uh, social, uh, I was, I was on the, um, I was on the podcast with, with Gruber last week. Actually, we should, mm. we should come back to that. Cause there's something I want to bring up about that. Um, okay. But, uh, and he, I think he made a really astute point that any consumer device or product has to enable communication because that's what people care about. And I've made a similar point before in, in, uh, when I made the social communications map. Um, the idea that like what what humans do is communicate. And they're, to suggest that there'd only ever be one way for humans to communicate is silly. Like, And if you think about the way we actually live our lives, we use all kinds of devices in all sorts of different contexts. And you know, Snapchat, I, I, I would, yes, there's a ton of social networks and most will fail. But I absolutely don't think it's a zero-sum game. So I can get the argument that this is a space, but I think it's it's one of those kind of infinitely expandable spaces because we have an infinite number of ways to communicate in different contexts. And, and, well, things and, like and as you reduce the friction, people communicate more and more. Right. No, absolutely. Um, SpaceX. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Let's we'll quite, quite laugh and move on. <laughs> why, why laugh? We're quite, quite literally expanding. The, the yeah, market. I know it's amazing. Um, Theranos, uh, laboratory services, so medical stuff. Um, number ten, Meituan. This is a Beijing online deals company. Um, like, I don't know. Like the, again, we're taking the top ten, and the top ten are the top ten for a reason. Mm. Um, so maybe it's not the best example. Probably, if you want to find more more problematic companies they would be towards the bottom of this list mm-hmm. but i think uh, i think the lesson the idea is clear that like so much of the opportunity today is in there's really greenfield and that justifies arguably more investment not less i i, I agree i i totally agree and there, there i mean again it's not to say that there aren't um issues with uh, or lessons that can be learned from previously. So you sent me a, a, a really interesting article by Bill Gurley about how investors need, like it's very much caveat emptor. And I, I guess we can link link to it in the show notes around like how investing in a late stage private round is very different from investing in an IPO simply because the the one is basically like the late stage IPO is just here's a PowerPoint deck, trust me. Uh, uh, an IPO is the, <laughs> the extent of the scrutiny is unparalleled. In fact, uh, uh, he makes the point that a company won't be scrutinized at at any point in its life as much as it will be at the point of an IPO. And and there are risks in just trusting what 
what is in the PowerPoint deck. But at the same time, you, I read a lot of this stuff that people are, are cautioning about like, you know, there's going to be a bubble, we're in trouble. And they point to things like, well, th- there aren't enough IPOs happening. But again, maybe this is just a function of the fact that the fundamental nature of these companies, the size of the companies, the growth opportunity is such that IPOs are just going to happen later and later and later because the growth trajectory is still so great. When you're Uber taking on taxi and automotives, uh, you're going to, if, if you think about companies IPOing at a certain point, at a point at which perhaps when growth is starting to flatten a little bit, or, or there's an ideal point at which to IPO. Given the size of these opportunities, I see less IPOs happening, and I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's it's almost the opposite. It's the opportunity is so big they're staying private for longer to make sure they get it right before they go out to the markets. Well, so that's interesting. Um, so I, you, you I think you mentioned this before the supply and demand issue. Um, it used to be that um, you had to IPO to get the money to grow. Mm. You know, and I think that uh, that's that above all is probably the number one biggest change between today and in the past. Mm. It's that you don't need to IPO. So, mm-hmm. so, so the re- there, there, there's two. There's there's traditionally been uh, three reasons. Three reasons to, to IPO. Number one is you get money for growth. Uh, number two is a liquidity event, uh, which this is two and three. So the investors get their money back. And, you know, with the return and then the founders and all the early employees can finally, you know, get rich for all the work that they put in. Right. And so th- th- and those are those are both lo- about liquidity, but they're two mm-hmm. different kind of motivations. And I think if you think about it, that first one is gone now. Like there is absolutely money available for growth. You see, so you don't need to IPO for growth. Um, number two uh is in so number two, the investor return is interesting. Let's hold off on that for a second. Number three, uh, when it comes to early employees and founders cashing out, like uh, there seems to be more and more comfort with there being uh, secondary deals um, or secondary markets, or, or and often they're put together with the consent of the company where early employees can sell stock uh, so that they can cash out just, you know, to, 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 you know, it'd be nice to not live in a hovel, you know, if you have like the, the stock that's worth a lot more. And the way the, the reason why the companies, the reason why the companies help out with these often, there's a great example, like Pinterest just one last week to like a 200 million deal or something like that, where they're allowing early companies to sell stock or early employees to sell stock is uh, it keeps employees happy, keeps morale up, keeps them, keeps them around uh, and also delays the pressure and scrutiny of, of an IPO. So the interesting thing is the is the investors though. Um, why are investors putting off getting their money back? And I think it's a pretty rational reason. And the reason is, uh, would you rather take a hundred million dollars and double down on a company like Uber or Pinterest or um, some of these other Stripe or whatever these companies might be, uh, or would you rather take that hundred million and put it on some new bets? And Given the size of the opportunity, as we talked about, you can understand the the doubling down sort of thesis. Oh, totally. Once it gets to the point of of the types of companies that you mention, you, <laughs> I like th- these companies again. These are often winner take all. Increasingly, it's winner take all. They're 
dominating entire markets that are outside of tech. They've they've broken through. They're getting. They're like growing at a rate where they look like to pull on our rainforest analogy. They're heading to the top of the canopy. Uh, you, you, it's hard to pick companies like that. And if you're in one, you you just want to hang on, right? You you don't want to let go. I mean, I, I can see so, but I think here's, and I think the downside though, and I think this is where um, folks like uh, Bill Gurley, who I have tremendous amount of respect for, and mm-hmm. anyone who wants to understand investing would, there's few better things you can do than just go back and read through his blog. Like go, go, go for years because there's unbelievable stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Um. Seriously, one of the possibly the highest value blog you can read like that. I, I, that that's that is a ringing endorsement. Um, but I think what oh, part of his concern is not the Ubers and the Palantirs and the obvious winners, right. right? I think it's all these other companies that hang us on, right? Exactly, and I think those are almost more interesting to think about. Um, on, on one hand, yes, they're competing for these big markets. But if part of the thesis is that the reason why companies are so valuable is because there are winner-take-all effects, that means there are also loser-take-all effects, Mm, which is not good, number one. And number two, I suspect there's a strong bit of FOMO going on, Um, fear of missing out, Uh, you know, where, where, well, I wasn't able to get on an Uber, so I'll get on on Lyft or something like that. Um, And (laughs) what was that harsh? No, uh, yeah, it's pro- it's probably fair, but it was very direct. Let's let's leave it at that. This first one that came to mind. Now I'm going to get in trouble. I've sometimes <laughs> we'll both get in trouble together because I I think that's mostly right. Um, but <laughs> I'm laughing at people being mad at me. Um, <laughs> but it, it, so I think that's where that's where sort of the danger zone is when it comes to this new dumping in a bunch of capital without a, a, a liquidity event area. Yes, it's yes. So I've I've been focused on the top and there, of course, it makes absolute sense. I, I wonder whether it still remains one of these supply demand things where it still makes sense for, I mean, we're not talking about um, naive investors at this point, like to be one of these folks that's investing this much money, there are, uh, to, to gain access to that amount of capital, I, I assume they know that there are risks, and it's not as sure a fire bet as as something up the top. That being said, like given their suite of alternatives, given the fact that so many of these growth companies aren't on the public markets, they can't buy into them. And here's the next best alternative. And yeah, it's more risky, but it's probably a lower valuation as a result. Well, maybe I should just go with it. Yeah, no, totally, and especially when you consider that. Um yeah, you have to look at it in a macroeconomic context. When you have, you know, companies like Germany, like or or the U.S., like selling countries, I think is the word you're looking for, right? But they're they're selling bonds uh, at a negative interest rate, right? People are paying them, right? Yeah. And, I mean, and the reason is that there's so there like there's so much excess capital um, and not many right. places to put it that that putting capital in these companies, even if there's only a ten percent that they break out or 20% or whatever it might be. Um, may that may very well be a, a you know, the, ex, the expected return. So expected return for people who are familiar is say you, you invest a hundred dollars and there's a 10% chance that you get back a thousand dollars and 90, 90% chance that you lose it all. So your expected return is 10% times 1000, which is a hundred dollars. 
uh, or 90% times zero, which is zero, which means your expected return is 100. So that, that's mm-hmm. like a, a, a net return deal. If you think there's 11% chance it'll break out, then you should invest because your expected return is $110. So anyhow, if you think there's a 10% chance you get so such return versus zero, or your alternative is, you know, paying the German government to hold your money. I mean, that's an extreme example, but right. Like, I think that that is definitely something that goes into it. And I think that's a little, that's a little riskier situation because, you know, the it's always that <laughs> understanding the world's economy and money flow is, is challenging. <laughs> yeah. People, I mean, there's been a great debate about between like, uh, ben Bernanke and, and Larry Summers and, you know, uh, other folks going on about this sort of stuff. And like, no one actually knows how it works. Right. And, and you pick up the newspaper every day and it, they, they explain what happens in such a way that they, that you think, or that it reads like it was blindingly obvious, but really if anyone writing the newspaper had knew it was as blindingly obvious as they made it out to be in retrospect, they probably wouldn't be writing the news. They'd probably have invested a lot of money and they, they'd probably be on an Island somewhere. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. Um, so the thing that this is the question I have for you and that I'm trying to work out. Mm. And you said before that you think it's, this new situation is great. Mm. Um, well, why do you think that this new, basically the idea now is instead of IPOing early to get money for growth, uh, companies are staying private and growing and IPOing at some point in the future. Uh, why, why do you think that's so great? Uh, did I, did I say great? I think so. But if you didn't, I mean, what, what I didn't mean to mischaracterize you. No, no, no. I, I know you didn't. I'm just trying to remember the context. I, I think they're doing it. I mean, I, they're behaving rationally, right? You're, you're an organization and you're growing really fast. And the point at which you IPO is the point at which it makes sense in terms of the financial return you're going to get. And, and that speaks to the maximum amount that you think you can get out on the public markets. And if there's there's a cost associated to going out, there's all that scrutiny, There's it's, it's, it's a very open kimono process. So there's a cost to going out to the public markets to get all that money. And if you think you can keep growing and you can grow at a rate such that when you do, like, like I almost think about it like a growth trajectory and in, uh, and entrepreneurs are, are trying to maximize the that the point at which they go out to the market such that they get the best return. Yeah, you want a little bit of you want a little bit of pop to make investors feel good about the fact that they um, they've invested in the company. But if you go out too soon, you're you've effectively left a whole lot of money on the table that you could have you could have got if you'd waited longer. But that, that doesn't and, the, the the problem though is a typical IPO is only ten to fifteen percent of the outstanding of of stock. Mm-hmm. So actually, m- most like most of the returns, if you like, if mm. someone gets rich, they get rich on the public market more than anything. You know, I mean, like, so it's not like you're putting out 100% of the stock for people to buy. And this is why I think people that get all worked up about companies popping and like banks wrecking them off stuff are kind of miss the point. Like a pop mm. actually helps everyone um, because it's only a portion of the stock that's offered anyway. Who the 85% of the stock that the investors and company still holds increases along with the pop, right? Um, so I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm sure that I buy the max. This is the maximum, like maximization moment. Well, that's true. But if it, if it goes up, 
if it goes up 50 or 60%, whoever it was that was holding 15% of the company that just went onto the public market obviously took a bit of a bath, right? Like I don't want to be that guy who sold 15% of Uber and on the first day of trading, it, it doubles in price. Well, I mean, if 15% is, 15, is, you know, what, 15 billion or whatever. And uh, that, I'll, I'll take, like I'll take someone, 15 billion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. But you, if you could have 30 billion, you'd probably prefer 30 billion, right? Like, you, you, yeah, you want it to go up. But you, there are also individuals who hold that stock, who are selling it out into the market. And that, that, they're, they're being rational about it. And so if you can get private money, if you can keep growing that way, if the private, if there's, a if there's a if everyone wants to get in your company if you are one of these people at the top um, and everyone wants to get in then you're able to command massively high premiums you don't have to go through the the, the very arduous process of an IPO I just and and plus the the size of the opportunities that some of these companies are chasing is such that they need all this capital and and there is still massive growth on the table I I think it seems I think it seems rational and kind of reasonable. It doesn't worry me that much at all. I, if anything, the thing that worries me is more the societal thing about the fact that it is, um, it's only open to a select few people, and therefore there's this reinforcing factor of the wealth where, like, I, I can't, go, I can go out and buy Apple, but I can't go out and buy Uber, and the number of people who can is actually really small, right? Yeah, that, well, that was you, you just stole my, my my devil's advocate position from me. Um, no, that's, a, you know, th- th- there is a societal question about it um, that the best returns are being hoarded to you, to use the word by a very small number of people that yeah. are, have that you already have to have a lot of money. You have to have the connections to, to make it happen. It's kind of reinforcing that divide. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, on the flip side, though, I think there is a flip side here, and this is this is something that I, I'm I've been I, I'm curious about. Um, a big problem with the bubble bursting in 2000 is um, actually a surprising number of companies didn't die, believe it or not. Um, a, a bigger problem was that all these companies that IPO'd and tons of retail investors took a bath. Right. And so like there are just normal people and small funds and um, grandma's savings account that all got wiped out because everyone was like into it and it was a can't lose. And, you know, the, the euphoria, it's it's mm-hmm. kind of hard, hard to remember what it was like. And day trading was a big thing then and all, <laughs> yeah. all, that, all that sort of stuff. Um, And so uh, uh, arguably the bubble bursting, the cost was borne by the common people. <laughs> to a significant degree. And what's interesting about today is if there is a bubble and if it bursts, the ones who are going to take a bath are all these institutions and individuals funding these kind of these unicorns and these growth things. And maybe like, yes, that will have an economic impact, but it might be less widespread and less problematic than the one in the, the, the dot com bubble. But there's an alternative hypothesis, and I think it speaks to what I was saying earlier, that these guys are are maximizing. And when you're sitting on top of a company that's making no money and you're kind of selling euphoria, you want to get out, you want to IPO as quickly as possible and take advantage of the euphoria. But when you're sitting on something that's truly valuable and is only going to become more valuable in the future, 
you're, well, you are much more likely to want to continue to sit on it and ride that out as long as possible. Right. But I mean, there, there are what, 10 companies that are guaranteed winners, maybe, uh-huh. maybe more, maybe 20 or 30. I don't know, but there's still, I mean, there's 70 unicorns, right? Uh, some, not all these are, not all these are going to make it. Right. And, but if they don't make it, who like previously, all these companies would have, would, mm. would already be on the public market. Right. Mm. And, and if half the companies say failed, uh, the people who are bearing the brunt of that, uh, are likely the most, the least informed investors. It's interesting. It, it, I mean, what it's doing is, I think you're making a, a fantastic point, and it's something that can often be lost in analysis, which is to assume that this is true over an average, but really there's a population. And what would be interesting would be to compare, uh, to, to think about this from a societal perspective, would be to compare the financial, well, the investors at the at the, the 10 clear winners versus the investors who are further down behind that, the ones that are less likely to make it and say, okay, who is winning here? Who is losing here? Yeah. Or who has the potential to lose? No, there tot- is... There is one other thing that I think I'd raise, which is that in particular in Silicon Valley, I think that there is uh, there is a zeitgeist forming around the fact that having public market pressures after an IPO does not lead to the best outcomes for a company. And I think it, it might have started with Apple and Steve Jobs and his complete disdain for the investor community. And I, I think it spread throughout the valley. I th- the Facebook... Famously, if you buy, like, I'm, I may get this wrong. I may butcher it. Correct me if I do. But like, both face, Facebook and Google have a class of shares that you buy on the public markets, such that give you access to the financial returns, but don't give you access to the voting rights. And maybe, maybe companies could IPO and do that. But I think that it just speaks to a general aversion inside the valley towards the pressures that public markets put on companies and the belief that it doesn't necessarily lead to the best outcomes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, Google and Facebook have slightly different structures, but effectively it's the same where the founders have total control and don't answer to anyone. Mm. Um, the, uh, I think the Facebook one is, is instructive, um, Particularly, I, though, even though Zuckerberg did have complete control, when they were really floundering kind of the year after their IPO, like mm. there was a lot of pressure on them. Like they were like a third, uh, they were way underwater from their IPO price. And there was a ton of investor pressure on them. And I think my thesis is that um, they were rumored to acquire Waze, the mapping company, um, the social mapping company. I think it's something that makes a ton of sense for Facebook. Uh, and Google swooped in and bought them uh, for like a billion dollars. And yeah, it, it was nice technology for Google to add, but I think it was primarily defensive by Google. And I think that Facebook, uh, my suspicion is that Facebook was handicapped because by their stock. But like, mm. I don't know that the investors would have tolerated, even though they didn't have direct control, like would have raised such a ruckus, um, you know, for Facebook making a huge acquisition when they were perceived to be struggling that I think Facebook missed a really golden opportunity. And um, and you know, the thing about the stock market in general, it's so much of it is, is about perception. Mm-hmm. And this is why this is the other thing, like where people that complain about pops, I think miss this, like a pop does so like it shields you for like a year. Right. I mean, tw- Twitter should have gotten way more scrutiny. Twitter already got a lot of scrutiny, but the reason why they, they, they haven't gotten as much as they probably should have is because they have that pop and people, they're still 
up from their IPO price, right? Whereas Facebook uh, got, or I think, got more scrutiny than Twitter ever has. Uh, that might be an exaggeration now, but at least in the in the few months after the IPO, because their their price dipped so quickly, and they kind of like they started with a bad impression, right? Mm. Um, and uh, and I don't know. I think so. I think a lot of that. Yeah, I think part of that plays a role. The Apple thing's interesting. But yeah, there's definitely a, a, a sense that the markets aren't nice places to be. On the other hand, if you're performing well, like Facebook today, it's a massive weapon. Because now not only do the markets love Facebook, and rightly so, but now Facebook has stock. And stock means acquisitions. And you have so much more buying power and ability to maneuver once you have that stock as a weapon as opposed to only having cash. Um, and I think that's something that that is missed out on companies staying private. On the flip side, sorry, I'm kind of modeling here. On the flip mm-hmm. side, uh, acquisitions are in some respects less important than they used to be, I think. And the reason is because you have companies like Uber, for example, going into green space areas. Who are they going to acquire, right? It's not like they're they're... They're going to acquire, uh, uh, like they, now they've just made their first acquisition, like a mapping company, which makes obviously makes a ton of sense. But up to that point, like they're blazing new ground. If you're blazing new ground, you need cash more than you need another company's help along the way. So it, I almost feel like this new greenfield area has changed the dynamics of, of needing stock for acquisitions and things like that um, mm. as well. That's a really good point. So so you the the tipping point becomes when so if you just need cash if you're just blazing a new ground if you're just growing a space if there's no one there that you'd actually want to buy you just need cash you stay in the private markets if you've if you've tapped out the growth of or it's starting to trail off of the core business and what starts to become important is acquiring things maybe adjacent or so on then that's when having the stock is critical and Facebook, to its credit, has done a phenomenal job with its acquisitions. Right, exactly. And, and that's exactly what they've done, like the adjacent spaces, things like Instagram. Like, <laughs> like, w- w- what was the better deal, Instagram or YouTube? I mean, it's hot. <laughs> that, that'll be like the, 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 the all-time debate, right? I'm just in, incredible. A um, billion dollars. It's crazy. It's a, yeah, it is crazy. It totally is crazy. They, they're very... Very, very smart in that they're buying businesses that potentially pose a disruptive threat and then just leave, like maybe create a few links, but mostly leaving them off to the side. Well, it's it's both ways. By virtue of being a threat, that means they're also a compliment. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, I mean, on Instagram, it's way you can build your friend graph very, very quickly because mm-hmm. you, your Facebook friends and you, I still get met. People are still joining Instagram. Like it's, it's weird. Right. But like I still get messages. Oh, so-and-so your friend joined Instagram. And most of the time I follow them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, no, exactly. And so, so that can be, that can be a huge weapon. I, I don't think this is a 2000 era, era uh, scenario. I think that this is a rational reaction to uh, the, the, the way that, these tech companies are growing out into spaces that previously technology hasn't had access to. I think your point about needing cash when you're blazing versus needing stock when you start acquiring in adjacent spaces is a fantastic one. And and not to, I, I think Bill Gurley's 
point aside about like some of the accounting tricks that you need to be very careful of when you're investing um, in these late stage private companies, putting that aside, because I think that is a phenomenal and very relevant point. I like all these warning signs that people are pointing to about the number of IPOs being down and whatever. I, I don't, it doesn't bother me. But then maybe I'm in this, I'm in the, I'm in the middle of the euphoria out here at the moment and I, <laughs> you I are, can't see it. You're immersed in the bubble. I think they're, they're actually, that's one more point I wanted to make. I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, people are saying, oh, well, it's problematic that there are so few IPOs and that I, and that a lot of IPOs are underwater or they haven't really gained. And I think that that's actually evidence that what we're saying, that what we're kind of saying is true. And that is uh, a stock's price and an increasing stock reflects increasing confidence that the company will continue to grow and grow and that its growth rate will, will, will like at, at a very, if you want to get very theoretical about it, a stock price is the sum of all future earnings uh, or that will be returned to the shareholder. Like, What's well, the sum of the expectations? Right, of the future exactly. Earnings. I mean, it gets really. I mean, the actual prices. Lots of things go into it. Um, but the reason why a and so when people complain, for example, people complain uh, like with Apple all the time. Oh, they have these massive earnings. Why isn't the stock higher? Blah blah blah. Like earnings are should already be priced into the stock, right? Mm. So Apple's big quarter should be priced into the stock theoretically six months prior or a year prior. Like you anticipate mm-hmm. that that's going to come. If you want to make, so if you want to, if you want the stock to go up because Apple's sold a ton of big screen iPhones, you should have bought the stock before the big screen iPhones came out. Right. right. Cause, and that's what you're buying. You're buying the, 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 the future growth. Um, if you, if you keep that in mind. And so if you buy Apple stock today, it's because you assume that Apple can continue to grow beyond where they are. Uh, and if you take that sort of thinking and apply it to these companies, if your thesis is right, that, that they're staying private during the biggest increase in growth, then we should expect that post IPO, the stock doesn't really go anywhere, right? Because the growth opportunity has largely passed or, and it's already priced into the stock. Um, again, not such a great deal for retail investors, uh, who, you know, because you're buying a mid-stage company instead of an early-stage company, but I don't think it's a sign of a bubble that well, you you can't both. It's not a sign of the bubble that these that these stocks aren't increasing like crazy. I agree. Your the like your description of the stock market is reminding me of the old Keynesian beauty contest, which was the when I was in my undergrad studies, when someone explained this to me, it like completely rammed home the notion of what it is, which is people are the stock market is like a beauty contest where you don't vote on who you think is the most beautiful, but rather you vote on who you think everyone else thinks is the most beautiful. Yeah, but on the flip side, I also think that the uh, what is it the 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 in the short term the stock market is a. Uh, a voting machine in the long run, it's a weighing machine. Right. I think in the long run, you know, it, it gets it right. And you can't get yes. caught up in the in the short term day to day, even quarter to quarter or year to year. Like looking over the five year term and it, it it tends to get get things more right than wrong, I think. I, I think I think that's absolutely true. You can't you can't fool everybody in perpetuum, right? Right. And I think of the, look at a country look at a company like Microsoft, right? Uh People would complain, oh, they're making so much, they're making ever-increasing profits throughout the 2000s. Why isn't the stock going anywhere? 
because the stock was priced that people expected them to be making those sort of profits, right? Mm-hmm. The reason why it wasn't increasing is because they didn't see where where Microsoft was going to go next. You've got to surprise the market effectively. Right, exactly. And so now the Microsoft stock has taken off, uh, almost perfectly coincided with when I left the company. Um I'm that, sure that's completely uncorrect. <laughs> uh, what? Well, either me or Steve Ballmer, one of us, <laughs> one of us two leaving the company. Um, but the reason why this, the, so what's happening now is Microsoft's earnings are actually going down, but the stock is going up. Why? Because th- this earnings decrease was already priced into the stock. What is being priced in the stock now is the expectation that Microsoft is going to make new money in new areas like the cloud, dev tools, whatever it, whatever it might be. And and that's what impacts the stock, not not what is happening today. What is happening today impacted the stock before. Mm. I, again, the one the one complicating, well, I'm sure there are many complicating factors, but as you're saying that, the complicating factor that's coming into my mind is the supply-demand part of it, which is that as more money enters the market looking for investment opportunities, the returns it's willing to take are going to go down. That's true. Absolutely. And I, I, and yeah, all this is definitely tied into kind of the macro global market. And that's, you know, that's, that's a little concerning because again, that's just, that's out of, out of anyone's control and no one ever can be certain how how it's actually going to go. So what are you going to write now that we've talked about it? <laughs> uh, I think I think a lot of the points we covered, just that like, uh, probably the point more than anything is just why today is different than before. The other thing too is I think the nature of companies today is very different. Um, like especially to enterprise companies are largely SaaS companies. Um, uh, software as a surface, software as a surface, software as a service uh, and the way these monetize are through subscriptions and recurring revenue. And the problem with recurring revenue is uh, that takes much longer to to become profitable. And arguably, the more you want to grow, the longer it will take to become profitable, uh, because you're you're going to expend a lot. You you expend a lot of acquisition and marketing costs to get accounts up front, which means so if I spend $100 to get you to sign up, James. My customer acquisition costs $100. And I want you to sign up to pay uh, $10 a year. That made that's made that's extreme. It was $25 a year, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, the if That means I lost $75 the first year, right? Mm-hmm. The next year, I make $25. And so net, I'm at minus $50, right? It, 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 I, it takes me a few years to, to turn that back. But if I have a service that is sticky and has that sort of recurring revenue, my lifetime value for you as a customer yeah. is huge, right? It's spend it's spend that money as many customers as you can get if they're gonna if they're gonna stick around. Right, exactly. And and if you think about that, if you think about these in cohorts, right? So one year I I spend hundred dollars for twenty five. The next year I do it again and you look at the company's returns in aggregate, for the first five to six years, they are they if they're not losing money, you should be very worried. Right, because they're not acquiring enough customers for the long run, and they're going to get overtaken by by somebody else. Yeah, and so given the fact that the vast majority of enterprise companies, in particular, use this model, and on the consumer side, a lot of companies, especially advertising based ones, advertising that you have to have scale first. It's it's almost the same sort of dynamic where you have to be unprofitable for several years if you want to have a long run chance of, you know, of significant profitability. Um, that also lends itself to this sort of market and investment model that we have today. Whereas back in 1999, there weren't that there wasn't the business model. The business model was licensing software yeah. and where yeah. you got the return much more quickly. Point, 
perfectly made. Like another example of how the world is just entirely different. And those SaaS businesses, if they are, if they are, if they have sticky customers, are fantastic businesses. But there's just been nothing like that to compare it to. Um, and they look deeply unprofitable to begin with. Like if you if you analyze them using the previous generation's approach of analyzing a company, it's like, well, I don't know about this. But if you play if you play that you play that. Uh, movie through it's it's these are these are fantastic companies fantastic investments yeah i mean the theory is really sound i think what's what's tricky i think this is where Gurley's post i think is 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 spot on about this is um it's really good in theory but if you don't really deeply understand the customer acquisition costs and the churn rate in particular uh it's it's difficult to make a a well-informed investment about these because they can theoretically sound good but like it's and this is, I think Gurley has talked about, it's not that there's a valuation bubble. He calls it a risk bubble. And I think that's exactly right. And that's because the unknowns are increasing in some respect, because if these SaaS companies, once they go through an IPO, you really understand their business much more deeply before that. It's very easy to kind of hand wave some important details. Um, and then number two, if it's rational to double down, right. Uh, that is also increasing increasing your risk. And I think his contention is, is he's concerned. A lot of investors aren't, uh, and it, and then combined with FOMO where everyone wants to get in that Mm -hmm. investors aren't being properly compensated for the risk that they're taking on. And they're not being properly compensated because there's so much competition for the investment spots. So they're, they're, they're forced to accept a lower rate of return. And I think that's his thesis. And I think that's probably right. Um, but I think that that's a bigger problem for the, investors than I think the industry broadly and, and even the economy broadly. Yeah. I, again, it, it, it's, it's, it's instructive to think about this, not as an average, but like looking at it at the different tiers. And I think the people who are in up the top, even if they paid a high price are probably going to do okay, given the companies they've invested in where it gets much more interesting are the ones where it's less clear. And I, again, you made that point earlier. I just think it's a very good point. And it's one that I would have missed had you not brought it up because it's so easy to over-index on the Palantirs or the so on and so forth, you know? Yeah. Cool. Um, I did, I did want to mention, I'm changing gears a little bit. Uh, I mentioned mm. I was on Gruber's podcast and uh, something that I think, um, there was an article last week about the Apple Watch and Wired, and we, we kind of dumped on it for a bit. And I, I felt, I, at least for my part, I felt a little bad. And the reason I felt bad was um, I don't know if I was clear enough. I, I can't speak for 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 John, um, but I my concern with the article was nothing to do with the article itself. Um, I actually, um, David Pierce, he's he's a great writer. He's done lots of good stuff, and so I, um, and I think I got some feedback that, and I. I, I I obviously wasn't clear. Uh, and part of which is the problem with the podcast and going back and forth. What I was criticizing to be super clear, and I wrote about this in the daily update, but I thought it's worth making the point again here mm. is my criticism was actually a very consistent criticism that both of us have been making for months now. Mm. And that's that uh, Apple's messaging is not particularly crisp or clear. And if Apple's messaging is particularly crisp or clear, then why should we be surprised that, uh, a Apple, you know, PR approved piece, uh, maybe has some messaging that that isn't exactly what Apple was hoping for. 
I, I <laughs> it's a very good point. I so I think this is the point at which you and I maybe have diverged in the past, which is I uh, I think you attribute that to poor communication and the fact that this is one of the things that Jobs really bought was like a focus on telling a story that was super compelling, super simple, super easy to understand, and people discount how hard that is to do. I, well, I here, here, here's a killer example. If you don't mind me jumping in, did you see sure. the did you see the John Oliver Edward Stone thing? I did not. No, you have should have. You have to watch it. It's 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 unbelievably compelling. Um, but uh, I thought it was a brilliant example of the power of messaging, specifically where he's pressing, like he's demonstrating to Stone that that actually a lot of Americans don't really know who he is and don't really care. And like, does that bother him that he did this and like? You know, a lot of people just don't know, don't care. And and Oliver was a great interview. It was funny, but he was holding Stone's feet to the fire. Like it was, it was really impressive. Um, but then the way he wrapped it up was, he said, "No, this is what you think about." It. It's like, can the NSA see pictures of my dick? Like, if I send dick pics, <laughs> and and then he had, and then he went back to the man on the street interviews, which he had done, and everyone was outraged at the idea that the government could see their dick pics. And then he went back to Snowden and walked through the different government programs and say, would this program allow the government to see my dick? And, and then Snowden explained, yes, this one would because of this, or this one because of that, whatever. And then like, and then it, it, it resonated. I, I resonated with people broadly so much more powerfully than anything else that Snowden has done. And it's not that it was any different per se, or that it was like, Yes, to mm. to talk about a dick pic trivializes it, but this doesn't trivialize pe- people. It doesn't trivialize it their intelligence, real. right? It it people are busy. They have a lot of stuff going on. We've talked about a ton about all the noise in the world, all the inputs, and you hear this about about Snowden and surveillance and the government. One side saying it's terrorism. I don't want terrorism. You know, I support my the troops. Like it, it of course, it's going to get lost, and that's that's half the purpose of opposition messaging, right? Is to you just want to muddy the water so that it just goes past people. I think I've talked about the 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 drug side effect thing before on the podcast, right? Where they often they're only required to list one or two side effects, but they'll list like ten or fifteen, yeah. So that the one that actually matters gets drowned out. That's that is like pay attention to politics, any issue, and watch how much this is the strategy. And what Oliver did with the making it about dick pics, that's what messaging is about. It's making something that resonates. And is it the entire story that's absolutely 100% true? No, it's not. It's a segment. It's it's truth. It's truthy, but truthy in a way that matters. And it gets the message across. And then people can find out more. And I think for people in tech in particular, and if you have an engineering sort of mindset where you, you you're thinking about every detail and all the parts that go into it. This is so difficult to pull off, right? How do you distill the essence? And and that's what Oliver did. And that's what I'm critical of Apple for not doing. Yeah. I, and it's funny you mention it because I, I don't know if there's one thing I love about writing, it's being able to find that thing that just strikes the chord. Like when you hit that, there's nothing more fulfilling, but here's it. Here's where you and I, I, I think it's, it's interesting because it's the subject of the difference on the Apple watch between you and I, whereas I, and I don't want to mischaracterize you, but whereas I think you would describe Apple as, uh, 
not doing a good job on the messaging because they lack jobs. They lack the the John Oliver inside of Apple to be able to like really bring it home to people. My concern is that they're, they're struggling with the messaging because they've struggled further upstream in terms of product development. And honestly, again, like I'm a big believer in this category and I hope I'm wrong. And I guess we're going to see in a little over a week, right? No, absolutely. And I think that's a very fair characterization. And I... And I share your concern. I think I wrote exactly that in my initial watch reaction article that mm. a, 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 a lack of clarity in messaging suggests a lack of clarity in in development. Um, on the flip side, uh, I, I and this is something I pointed I made on on the talk show. I oh. think there's an aspect to things like this, even the phone, right? Um, where I mean, think about think about the phone. App this what's the what's the story everybody knows, right? That oh, we hated our phones, so we decided to build a new one. Like that's that's brilliant messaging, right? Totally. And Absolutely. Because I remember the story. I remember him taking the journalist into the Verizon store and picking up phones. I don't even remember where I read it, but I remember it. And he's like, This is a piece of shit. This is a piece of shit. This is a piece of shit. Like, I'm sick of having to use pieces of shit. Right, and and so I actually in the in this day I have to actually quote this this piece from Fortune where Jobs is saying, well, we you know we have the operating system, we have this stuff. What if we actually made a better phone? Like that's not how it happened, right? <laughs> they 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 experimented. They had a tablet actually, okay. right? Like, well, maybe this should be a phone. Like, oh, which should we use the iPod operating system? Should we use the OS? I don't know. Let's try one out, mm. right? And like, what ended up being the core use case of the phone? It was apps. And they didn't even watch with apps. And I actually, I don't think Jobs even wanted apps in the first place. I know this is a point of contention. Some people think he doesn't know Dan. I, I think he's on the boat. He we wanted Apple to control everything, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless, they didn't launch with it. Like, and I think there's no question that Apple decided to make a phone and then figured out what it would be good for, mm-hmm. right? Like, and I think it's, it, uh, and so that's my point where I think, I think you're, you may be right, but I don't think it's a problem that they decided to build a watch and now they're figuring out what it's what it's good for. That's I I totally agree with that. Except that the use cases and the the story around the launch of the phone was super compelling. And yes, it it may have evolved just in the way that the watch has, or just in the way that the the phone has evolved to be around apps. I feel like that land and expand like that's what apple did it started and then it built out like i my concern is that the starting point for where the watch is right now is not being messaged clearly enough and it's actually i worry that it's not compelling enough but again the proof's going to be in the pudding pretty soon no totally and i'm repeating myself from the last from the last podcast so sorry people who who listen to both um but uh no i i it's interesting i i think so i i don't know i think that messaging yeah, you're right. I put it more up to just, I think Jobs was really good at it and he was so involved in it that the people that were left were more impl- like implementation people as mm-hmm. opposed to the people that actually come up with it. Um, but yeah, we're right. We'll, we'll see soon enough. Anyhow, I, I mainly wanted to clarify because I felt that I would re-listen to it and I thought I was a little harsh on on Pierce who, I, like I said, I like and I'm sorry I came across that way when, again, I think I've been consistent about this for a while too. That's the other mm. thing. Like yeah, Apple, yeah, yeah. Apple, like especially the iPad. Like I think their messaging about that has just been atrocious. And I think it's like, and people, this stuff matters, right? Like, I don't know. I, I, I'm maybe I'm biased because I'm a 
I'm a writer and 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 a marketer at heart and an mm. MBA and all this sort of stuff like that. I think that marketing and advertising like actually really matters. But I think it really matters. And I think it's been awful around the iPad. And a lot of people who would benefit from the iPad don't use it. Um and I and I, to me, that's the bigger danger sign for for the watch. But I guess it's all interconnected. Phil Schiller's been left without adult supervision too long, huh? Yeah, don't get me started on Phil Schiller. <laughs> oh, dear. Very good. Always good. I'll catch you later. Yeah, I got to get this article written. Yeah, good luck. All right, talk to you later. See you, mate.